I would get I would get letters, and I still have the same letter. I have a letter uh, tucked away in my my files, but it was from a parent who, and I get it. It was from a parent who uh, had just lost their son, and they sent me a picture of his flag draped coffin, and they also sent me a picture of Pat Tillman, and they said, you know. I thought C, the C that you wore on your uniform at West Point meant captain, but in your case, it means coward. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. In 2008, Caleb graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and was commissioned as an officer in the United States Army. The difference between Caleb and his classmates is that while the majority of them went to war, he went to the NFL. He didn't know it at the time, but he was about to fight his own battle, an inner war that almost cost him his life. You're certainly going to want to tune into this conversation in the Forge as we understand what that story and that battle looked like for Caleb. Enjoy the conversation. So thank you for joining us in the Forge today. You know, when I set this podcast up, and and for regular listeners, you know, Forging Metal is about facing adversity, doing hard things, and, and I have now trademarked the name Forging Metal, and so really this this metaphor, this analogy of, of going into the Forge and, and coming out stronger, right? You're you go into the forge and there's there's heat and there's pressure and there's hammering and and all of that. Our guest today is the prototypical perfect guest for forging metal because he's been through the fire mm-hmm. and he's come out stronger. So Caleb Campbell, thank you for joining us today. Ron, thanks for thanks for having me and uh, also thanks for creating the space to have these conversations. I appreciate that. I, I yeah, I, of course I think this is important. So it's mm-hmm. always nice to hear somebody else uh, that agrees with me there. So, you know, I got, I I got in touch with you from one of my previous guests, Julie Lithcott Hames. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful uh, woman, wonderful person, wonderful uh, powerhouse. Yes. Interview. She got a little fired up in our, in our interview. It was fun. (laughs) Um, But she, she kind of, she dropped your name and I said, wow, this guy sounds like somebody I want to reach out to. And that's how I kind of got on your path and, and, I vaguely remember, and I hope you don't hold this against me. I vaguely remember your story when you when you were in the NFL, um, but I don't. I didn't know it well until I started kind of digging into it. So let's start there, Caleb. Let's let's yeah. talk about this idea of I don't know, maybe two thousand eight. You know that time frame when when you left the, uh, West Point and and went into the NFL. What what happened? What was going on there? Yeah, there's uh, oftentimes I, I will say that there are two parts of that story that's happening simultaneously. On the external, what's happening is uh, my sophomore year at the academy. If you're familiar with West Point, then you know when you graduate the academy, you have a minimum of a five-year service obligation. You get commissioned as an officer, and you're in the military as an officer um, and serving in whatever capacity uh, for at least five years. Uh, my sophomore year at the academy, I was uh, number six rated strong safety in all of college football, and a lot of NFL scouts started coming around. Teams started to talk uh, to West Point, to me. Agents started reaching out. 
And it kind of started this conversation and this conversation was already kind of happening. Uh, there was a, a, a couple years before me, a baseball player that was getting the opportunity to go pro. And so they were trying to continue this conversation with, you know, cadet athletes who have the opportunity to go pro. Um, and what does that look like? You know, what does that look like? Especially we're a nation at the time of war um, and everything's happening. So that happened my sophomore year where they created this new policy called the Alternative Service Obligation Policy that essentially said if I was good enough to get a professional contract, I could go play in the NFL and surf simultaneously. Um, And it was kind of loosely worded, didn't know exactly what that looked like or what that meant. Uh, But nonetheless, my senior year, I find myself at Radio City Music Hall getting drafted and selected by the Detroit Lions. And... You know, after I got selected, I graduated West Point, got commissioned as an officer. A lot of my classmates, um, they went off to their assigned duty stations and I reported to training camp. And then on the day of my first NFL contract signing, you know, literally uh, the 24 hours before uh, training camp was scheduled to start in about 120 minutes before I was scheduled to sign my first NFL contract, I got a call from the Department of Defense. Um, and also from my agent telling me to get to the stadium immediately. Uh, I got to the stadium. I walked into the room and anybody that's anyone uh, with the Detroit Lions, including the owner, they were all up there in that conference room. And that's when I heard uh, the athletic director from Army from West Point on that phone and kind of told me, hey, that policy that was created um, back when you were a sophomore at the academy, it's been rescinded. It no longer exists. You have to return back to active duty immediately. um, And you need to be at West Point by the start of day tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, And so it was this really big whirlwind. And they they kind of rewrote the policy. I didn't know at the time, but they rewrote the policy um, that said, you know, after you serve for a minimum of three years, if you still have a professional contract, um, you can apply for an early release. And that word apply meant a lot of different things. There was a lot of hoops that I would have to jump through in order to uh, get that early release and to ultimately, hopefully, you know, fulfill this childhood dream and get back into the NFL. Caleb, can I interject real Please. quick? If, and I'm sure you've been asked this. Do you ever think back and say, wow, what if that wouldn't happen? 120 minutes yeah. before you're about ready to put pen to a con- your, your childhood dream, your contract. Mm-hmm. And what if they, you know, what if, what if that wouldn't have happened? Your whole life would have been different? You um, think about no, that? I think it saved my life. Wow. Okay. Um, if I'm being yeah, honest, <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the other part of the story that a lot okay. of people don't, don't realize or what I speak often about now when I'm, um, you know, on a keynote stage or working with a leadership team is I knew that. I did not have what it takes to make it in the NFL. Like I honestly, Ron, it's kind of funny. I played better football when I was in Pee Wee than I did um, in the off season program. Tell, tell me more. What, what do you mean by that? I just, I, I looked and I felt like I did, had never played football before. So what happened is when I got to Detroit, they moved me from the one position that I knew. And that was safety. It's the position I played all through college football. I um, mean, they moved me to an outside linebacker. I just didn't vibe with the position. I couldn't pick up the position, you know, playing 12 yards off the ball versus playing three and a half, four yards off the ball. You're kind of a big safety. I was, I was actually the biggest safety in college football when I got drafted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was just a really big change for me. And then on top of that, the stress and the pressure that I was dealing with, I didn't have the social emotional tools 
um, to really navigate that in a conscious way or an intentional way uh, with a level of awareness that was needed um, to deal with that stress and to deal with that pressure. At that time, you either loved me or you hated me. And what I mean by that is I received, I was receiving flags from uh, units that, you know, they, they flew this flag into this combat mission um, and they, you know, would send me the flag as kind of a good luck charm and saying like, hey, our whole unit, our whole brigade is behind you. We're rooting for you. Don't let us down. Or I would get, I would get letters and I still have the same letter. I have a letter uh, tucked away in my, my files, but it was from a parent who, and I get it. It was from a parent who uh, had just lost their son and they sent me a picture of his flag draped coffin. And they also sent me a picture of Pat Tillman. And they said, you know, I thought C, the C that you wore on your uniform at West Point meant captain. But in your case, it means coward or cut and run. Um, you know, your entire school, like your entire class is going off to fight our nation's war and you're going to the NFL. Um, and so I remember what you feel it, it debilitated me again. I didn't, I was, I was the least self-aware person you've ever met in your life, Ron, at this time, I was the most emotionally reactive person you've ever met. Um, I was driven by so much fear when, when we'll talk about this, but when you look at a person's nervous system, right? When you look at their autonomic nervous system, I was stuck in that parasympathetic or that sympathetic nervous system um, all day, every day. And I was so anxious. I was so uncontrollable, so unpredictable. Um, I had a lot of rage in me, a lot of, inner, uh, a lot of anger in me. And I was scared, you know, I was just a scared little boy in a man's body trying to navigate the world with the tools that I did not have access to. And so a lot of a lot of things were happening during that time. And I just felt so much pressure from both sides. I didn't want to disappoint people. You know, I did graduate with 972 other cadet athletes or with cadets and they went to war. I went to the NFL. I kind of internalized this story and this pressure as like, hey, this is my battle to fight and this is my war to win. Like, this is the way that I'm going to give back. This is the capacity in which I'm going to serve. I'm going to have a really successful, there's no ands, ifs, or buts. I've got to have a really successful NFL career so I can give back and so that I can, and so that I can do these guys proud. Um, and so I just had all of this pressure and all of this stress. And then when I went out to Detroit and we had this off-season program and I saw myself just getting the shit kicked out of me and getting my ass kicked on the football field. And I knew that I had been, I was not going to make it. I knew I was not going to make the cut. I was not going to make the team. Um, so when they came around and told me that I couldn't play, come on, I was secretly thrilled mm. that they told me I couldn't play. Because at this time, I'm telling myself, one, I get a safe face. I don't get the whole world. I get to protect my secret from the entire world. And that secret is this deep fear that I'm not enough, that I don't have what it takes. And then on the other side of it, I kind of tell myself, now I have three years to become bigger, to become faster, and to become stronger. So that when a time does come, and if I do happen to get that chance three years later, I will be prepared um, to make the best of it. Wow. And so if you're following along, basically, Caleb, you were, you were kind of yanked out. Um, and then three years later, you, you could resume your career. And so that's what yes. you're talking about with that three year, 
Yep. You know, after three years of serving, um, if I was still able to get a professional contract, I could apply for an early release and then play and then also continue to serve in a, a reserve capacity. Okay. So here we are. We're feeling like we're never enough, but you're going, hey, wait a minute. I get three years to become enough, right? I'm sure that was what, yeah. whether that was explicit in your mind, that's what you're thinking, right? Now I can Absolutely. become enough. Um, I can almost guess how that turned out because I'm somebody that's recovering from always feeling like I'm never enough. <laughs> and uh, so I can, I can relate. And that hole is hard to fill with what? That's something we're going to talk about is performance. <clears throat> you, you talk about achievement equaled performance. And, and so you kind of, you kind of, you know, hook those things together. And if you're looking for that to fill your, that hole in your, I don't know, in your soul, gosh, that's a big hole. <laughs> you know, this as well as I do, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think it's achievement equals performance, but performance equals acceptance. Mm. Performance equals belonging. Performance will love me. I, I will find my place in the world. My life will matter. I'll be seen. I'll be known. I'll find the significance that the deeper parts of my being craves. Like I, I realized, Ron, through years of therapy that it was never about the NFL for me. It was about reaching this perceived reality where I had no vulnerability. It was about reaching this perceived reality where I finally felt safe enough and secure enough in my life. And so it wasn't about the NFL, but it was about this idea of what the NFL represented to me. But then I started to realize that it was in the NFL that I still didn't feel safe. I still didn't feel secure. I still had all of these deep vulnerabilities that scared the shit out of me. Right. And so I realized that there was this massive disconnect happening at that point. Hey, do you think this is another great topic, vulnerability, right? And so yeah. do you feel like, and I think I know the answer, but let me hear it in your words. Can we be strong and also be vulnerable? I think it's the very definition <laughs> of strength. You'd say that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, and I think we have to like really define uh, vulnerability because I think in today's world, we know that vulnerability is a hot topic. And we know it's necessary. We read the Brene Brown books or we read all the research from Adam Grant around vulnerability. And then we think that vulnerability is just verbally vomiting about our weaknesses or about what's going on in our life. That's not necessarily what I mean by vulnerability. I think vulnerability is a, more than anything a posture of the heart. And it requires a, a deep level of self-awareness that you can learn. Right. But it's really understanding when I show up in life with all of this protective armor, when I'm hiding behind this facade of success or when I'm hiding behind my achievements or when I'm hiding behind my status or my accolades or my role. Right. Or whatever it is that I'm using to protect myself from fully being seen, protect myself from fully being known, like vulnerability looks like taking the armor off. And that can look like a million different things, but that takes tremendous courage. Mm. That takes a tremendous amount of strength that supersedes this notion of willpower. Like this, there's a deeper story being told, right? That is more, and I'm not saying your, your ability to get up and try again, your perseverance, your grit, your resilience isn't, doesn't matter, but I'm saying there's something that's even giving you the opportunity to tap into an inner strength that supersedes all of those things. 
What? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned going to therapy, but was there anything that was like a, a flip the switch where you're like, okay, I'm dropping the armor now? Was was there mm. a moment that you can point to that that changed it for you? Yeah, I think what I heard all the time in the NFL, uh, Ron, was like, you know, you're Captain America. You're 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 a soldier. You're if there's one guy that can make this work and to make this happen, it's you. Like you're a soldier. Like you went to West Point, you know. And so I heard all of this language around the expectations of how people saw me and what people expected of me. And again, I was so wildly afraid of being seen for who I really am and the truth about what I really was experiencing. And so I lived in the tension of showing up and trying to live up to these expectations, trying to be the strong one, trying to be the person that has what it takes, trying to be the person that, you know, shows up 30 minutes early, stays 30 minutes late, you know, so that I can fit the mold of the expectations that everybody had of me because I was this soldier Mm -hmm. NFL athlete from West Point. And there became this tug of war in my life where it's the very definition of imposter syndrome. Like I was trying to live into the expectations of who I thought I should be and who everybody else thought I should be. But my God, I was barely holding on. You know, I could, I, every day it took every fiber of my being and every ounce of energy that I had to barely hold this image and this facade together. Um, and I remember I got to this point in the NFL where I couldn't, I couldn't keep pretending I was going to lose it all. And what I mean by that is I knew that I was living a lie and I hated myself because of it. And I am in the middle of my childhood dream and I'm going on 48 hour, 48 hour benders with drugs and with alcohol, trying to just cope with this pain of self-hatred because I'm showing up every day and I'm not living honestly and I'm living this lie. And although I couldn't communicate that, I felt it in every part of my body and I hated myself and I hated my life and I wanted a way out. And I was scared of walking away because I thought that meant that I was a failure. I thought that meant that I was weak. I thought that meant that I wasn't who everybody thought I was. And I was just going to be a disappointment to anybody and everybody that mattered to me. Right. So I couldn't walk away. So I was looking for my way out and it really was, it was going to be a a way that would result in my parents getting a phone call notifying them that their son is no longer with them. Wow. All right. Let's, I, I figured we we're going to go here, but let's go here. Um, <laughs> let, let's get serious for a second here yeah. uh, because I think this is, this is a topic that gets, I think, uh, brushed under the rug. It gets, I mean, people don't like to talk about it cause it's uncomfortable, but, but here's the deal. We got to talk about this. You said that this inner battle and you just kind of alluded to this, this inner battle almost cost you your life. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? What, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I think it was just um, in a sense where I felt like I want to be more open and honest about my struggles. I want to, I, I just want somebody to come along and give me the permission to say I don't have to have it all together all the time. But I didn't have that permission because of the expectations and because of what people were saying to me and expecting, and really truthfully what I was expecting of myself. Like I should be I should be a guy that has what it takes to make this happen in the NFL. 
I have all the tools. I have all the talent in the world. Like what the fuck is going on? And the inner, the inner struggle was just constant suppressing and denial of my truth of really truly what's going on so that I could meet the expectations of who people think I should be. Right. So I could live into this image of who I want to be and who others want me to be. But every day it was this, uh, this tug of war between trying to live into this image, but also being somebody that's just drowning in depression, drowning in panic attacks and anxiety, uh, drowning in this, this measure of self-hatred, just disgusted with myself because I think I should be better. I think I should be more. And every day I'm disappointing myself. And so I'm, I'm living inter- internally with this struggle that's just happening. And again, I'm the least self-aware person you've ever met at this time. So I have no language for this. It is just an emotional chaos that is erupting on the inside of me every single day. And so how do I deal with that? I don't know how to talk about it because I don't have the language for it. And so, you know, that's when it just becomes obsessive drinking, obsessive drug use, anything just to numb the voices, to numb the pain so that I can just, hey, survive another day and maybe tomorrow I can figure it out. Boy, you know, here at 14 Mental, the way I teach mental toughness and, and coach on it is that mental toughness has bad days. Yeah, come and, on. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to call, I feel like I'm calling people out when I say this, but I, I don't subscribe <clears throat> to the David Goggins model of, of I love David. Uh, I love a lot of what he's doing, but he acts like, you know, we never have bad days. And if you come do, you're, you're weak, right? Yep. And, and that is such a just dangerous message. Yeah. So right. let's, we, just let's, became, we just became best friends with that comment. <laughs> we, we've got to pause right here for all the listeners and say, hey, you can still be tough. You can be mentally tough and have bad days. That's part of being human. So let's let's make sure we emphasize that. And I love, you know, coming from you. I mean, I don't know you well, but my guess is you're a pretty mentally tough guy. And but you know, hey, we had to navigate some storms here. So absolutely. Did this lead to, I mean, let's use the word. Did this lead to you thinking about suicide? Oh, absolutely. Every day of my life. Okay. If it wasn't like active, like committing suicide, I knew there was a night um, where I was sitting in the parking lot of the facility of the team I was playing for at the time. And I had been up for 48 hours on a bender. And I I was, I'm, I'm walking into practice. And I'm having this moment of realizing that like, I'm this walking like lie. Nobody knows really what's going on. Nobody knows my habits. Nobody knows what I'm hiding, right? Nobody knows any of this. And I I realized I had this moment where I'm like, Jesus, Caleb, you are actively trying to kill yourself. You're trying to blow up your life in such a dramatic way that could result you going to jail right? Getting in massive trouble or worse yet dying. Like you're trying to actively kill yourself. Like something has to change. And I had enough awareness to realize that like that, that, you know, shortly after, you know, me getting cut for that third and final time, I, I had a call from my agent saying, Hey, a team wants to bring you in for a workout. And I'm like, no, I I can't. I know that if I say yes to this, like nothing in my life is going to change. And this is like the idea of grace, you know, and whether you believe in God or the unit, whatever, this is like the universe's way, God's way of saying, Hey, this is, I'm going to extend some grace for you to see that if, 
if you don't change, if something in you does not change, nothing in your life is going to change. And, you know, what Albert Einstein says that we can't solve a problem at the same level of awareness that created the problem. And so I knew that I had to shift focus so that I could begin to shift my paradigm and change my awareness around what I'm going through in my life so that I can begin to change my inner world. And when my inner world changes, therefore, everything else is going to begin to hopefully fall into place. And so there was just that one moment where I realized I'm actively trying to kill myself. Something in me, something has to change. And I said no to that to that opportunity to go play in the NFL. And that's when I hung my cleats up for good. And I begin this, you know, I'm on a, a 12 year journey. I often say I'm 12 years old. <laughs> uh, I'm 12 years old in terms of like learning how to take care of this, meaning my heart. Yes. If you're, if you're not watching this on YouTube, uh, Caleb is, is motioning to his heart. And uh, yeah, I love the way you put that. I'm a, I'm a 12 year old. Yeah. You know, I, I always like to use the, the terminology like, you know, I talk to my students about, you know, now you're version 2.0 or, you know, if, you, yeah. if we want to talk about software or whatever, but, but you take it a little different. I like that. Um, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, so, and I think you started to kind of open the door to this, that what, I mean, what, why do you do what you do now? What, what, what mm. is the last 12 years? I mean, I, I get a sense you've got some passion for what you do now. Um, what drives that? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it changes. I think for, you know, for 10 years, it was my own sanity. <laughs> you know, I, I've always lived with this, Ron, like this deep ache in me. Um, I've always lived with this intuitive knowing that there's something more, there's something deeper. Um, and I don't mean more in terms of like this upward trajectory of a bigger and better life necessarily, but I mean more in terms of like a more rooted a more grounded life. One of my favorite poets is Rilke. And he says, you know, if we could just surrender to earth's intelligence, we too could rise up like rooted trees. And I want to live a rooted tree type of life. You know, I want to be able to be rooted, to be grounded, to be fully aligned, to be in my life, to be comfortable in my own skin, to be comfortable in my body, to feel safe and secure in my life and to do work that matters. Um, and so for so many years, what drove me was just deeper healing, deeper experiences of healing, deeper experiences of surrendering and letting go so that I could begin to taste true freedom, this inner freedom that I think we all have an invitation for. I think we're constantly being extended invitations to go deeper into our own lives. Um, but this is uh, the great paradox that the deepness of life that we long for doesn't come through doing more achieving more, being better necessarily. It comes with learning how to resist less. And I, I realized that there was a moment in my life that, you know, getting to the next level of my life wasn't about doing more, but it was learning, uh, learning how to resist less, learning how to surrender, learning how to let go. Um, and that's been the real work. And I, and, I, and I say all of that to give you a little bit more context that I find a lot of people are in their life. And despite working hard, despite showing up every single day, the life that they want is not the life that they have. And they're waking up and they're feeling this dread, this weight, this despair. And they've tried their hardest to work their way out of it. They tried their hardest to achieve their way out of it, to get to this next level of uh, accolades. And they find themselves there and they realize that, damn, this ache, it's still here. Like, what is going on? Um, my work and my passion is to create language around that experience so that you better understand your own story and really giving you the tools to say yes to your own paradox 
of healing or your own paradox of life that you're going to have to step into so that you can expand your life, expand your leadership, expand who you are um, in a way that you've never expanded before. Yeah, boy. Same, 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 right? Uh, you know, I, I always say that my journey started with trying to to find a salve for my wound. Mm-hmm. And, and I can hear that in what you're saying. And mm-hmm. then once I, I felt like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting pretty knowledgeable about this and how can I help others with it now? Yeah. And so that, uh, and I like that you, you say, get some language around this because yeah. this is not that uncommon to be quite honest. I was the same person. I, I had everything that people told me I should want and, and I wasn't fulfilled yeah. and I couldn't figure out why. And so it, it, I didn't have the tools to figure out how to eject from that and start to pursue something I loved and I was passionate about. Absolutely. So, boy. I, th- we, I think we, it, I think for me, it, w- it was like 10 years. Like, I was just trying to survive for so many of the, that time. Like, really just trying to survive. And I tried, to, I tried to start things. I tried to create things, you know, in terms of like, start this group or start this program or start this. And it was all premature. And looking back, it's so clear now that it's premature, that I was still going down and descending into my own soul, into the depths of the of my own inner turmoil, so that I could better understand at a deeper level uh, my story and how it relates to other people. And truthfully, just in the last two years, Ron, or not even two years, maybe a year and a half since you know my wife and I moved from Los Angeles to Nashville, Tennessee, have I begun to realize that there's been this complete energetic shift in my life, and now it's time to start really doing the work. Um, of carrying the buckets of water that can help other people put out the fires in their own life and really uh, begin to learn their own tools and their own story in a new profound way that can hopefully and what I believe will usher them into a deeper, more satisfying, more real, more fulfilled way of doing life. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we all, we all deserve that, right? We all deserve to live, to live that life. Um, you know, I hear in, in what you're saying that, you know, more is not always better. I mean, this yeah. this makes me a little bit crazy with how society, and not to play a victim. I always say, let's not be a victim here. Uh, we have power over this. But we get bombarded with this idea of the hustle culture, right? Yeah. And, and do more and be more productive and don't waste time. And I think so many of these are, are just working counter to a little bit of maybe what I'm hearing from you is how about instead of doing more, you do less or, or less resistance, as you say. Um, and that's a hard message to sell to, especially a lot of young people. Yeah. We want to be the the captain of our ships. You know, we want to be yeah. in control of our lives. And I think there, is, there does come a time where you do have to begin to learn maybe, or to begin to trust that there is something outside of your ability holding this all together. Right? And, and that's hard when you've been the one that has built an identity around performance, around achievement, around you know moving your life forward. When that's your when that's your identity, God forbid, not going or not doing, it's terrifying. It literally feels like a, a metaphorical death. And I think it's really nuanced. Life is not a. It's, for some, it's about hustling really hard. For some, it's not about hustling really hard. Um, I think the the better question is is like why is it so important to begin with? Like truly, what's the driving force behind this? Is it fear? Like what is the driving force? And if we can deploy the self-awareness in our life and to better understand the driving forces, the intentions behind why we do what we do. And and those are 
layered. <laughs> they are really, really layered. And I think we think we know it because I would have told you for the last decade that the driving force behind my life is to make a difference. But that's not the case. My, the driving force behind my life was driven out of a fear of never being enough or a fear of living an insignificant life. And it took me years to peel back the layers and to kind of develop the, the, the willingness to be honest with myself and to see the truth about really what's going on um, in my lives. And so I'm with you on the hustle culture. And, and it took me years to realize that it was never as much about the hustle as it was a much, as what as it was about me avoiding stillness. Right? And why why avoid stillness? This Man. is this is fun. Avoiding stillness, like avoiding being present yeah. in my life, like being present in my life, like that scared the shit out of me. You know why? Because when I got really honest and when I began to peel back the layers, I began there to realize go. that shame. Shame was the driving force behind my life. And I was able to connect this. And this is the beautiful thing about therapy. Like when I was six years old, I remember being in a room full of family. And I was around an uncle that had too much to drink. And he pulled my pants down, completely depants me. And I'm in a room full of people who I should feel safe around, who I should feel secure mm. around, who I should feel loved and nurtured. And now in this moment, I'm literally physically exposed. And I'm met with a room full of laughter. And I was so humiliated. I pulled my pants up and I ran out that door and I hid for about four hours. They had to send out people to find me because I was so deeply humiliated and wounded in this moment. It took me years of therapy to really connect the dots that when I'm fully seen in my life, when I'm fully exposed in my life, I'm not enough. I'm truly not enough. So this shame, this pervasive shame was the actual driving force behind my life because let me prove to you how great I am. Let me show you how big I can get. Let me show you the great things that I can do. But it was never enough because this is what shame does. Shame literally erodes our life from the inside out and it's always going to tell us that we are never enough. And now anytime you ask me to be still, I had to taste that shame. I had to see that shame. Mm-hmm. I had to feel that shame. So I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I am not touching that. Let me just continue this upward trajectory of doing more, being more, achieving more to avoid the shame. There you go. And, that, and that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? We, we see this hustle culture. And I would agree, there might be a good reason for that. Um, and, and, you know, who am I to, to tell anybody what's a good reason. But if the reason is achieve more, if I can hustle more, then I can achieve more. If I can achieve more, then I'll be more valuable. If I can be more valuable, then more people will love me, right? It's all about this idea of just finding some some acceptance. Yeah. And oh, by the way, when I sit still, then I'm alone with my thoughts and I may not like what I find in there, me included. Uh, I yeah. do a lot of endurance sports where you run 50 miles, you have a lot of time to think. <laughs> You go into a lot of caves and, and you don't always like what you find in those caves. But this is part of how, I mean, we can, we can ignore it, but uh, I think you'd agree. That's how we get better is we, we need to go in there and say, okay, we're, yeah. let's look at the wards. We need to learn how to um, create the environments that give us the permission to ask harder questions and to better understand ourselves. Like we truly need to better understand what are the undercurrents of our life that are truly moving our lives forward. If we really want to, I guess I will use the word maximize our life experience. Like I, I want to maximize my life experience. I want to find deep fulfillment, deep happiness. I want to find deep inner peace. I want to run my race. I want to be in love with my life. 
I do. And I think for so many of us, especially if you're a high achiever or you're a performer or like a, a performance eccentric person, we think that the way to experience that depth of life is through this, this, this upward trajectory, this do more, be more, achieve more, go, 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 go. And it has its place in our lives. It really does. But um, there's going to come a point where you just can't do anymore. And the faster that you can get honest with yourself around that, the better off you are. And the invitation then is to go inward is to really better understand these, these undercurrents, the stories that are driving your life for the intentions that are really behind your motivation in life so that you can really begin to see what's really going on and begin to apply energy and focus in that capacity. And then you're going to see your inner world begin to expand, right? And that's going to drive deeper connection with yourself. It's going to drive and foster deeper connections with the people around you and that relationships and those heart-centered relationships when you open up and you're allowing yourself to be seen because you're no longer afraid of being exposed. Why? Because you've done that work. You've seen the dark parts of your crev- the heart's crevices. You've asked the hard questions. You begin to heal and process pain. You can show up in the world as more of your authentic whole self. And that has massive, massive, you know, uh, influence over the depth and the connections and the happiness and the inner peace that you're going to begin to experience in your life. And it, it starts with going inward and, and asking those hard questions and learning the tools. Learning the tools are big um, so that when you can see the things that you are afraid to see, you know exactly how to respond and you have the tools to respond. Mm. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, I always say I'm a I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, <laughs> it was certainly it was certainly the way I, I was I was raised, and and I, I I'm going to go out on a limb and say I feel like I, you might be one of those people as well. Were you? Did you grow up thinking perfection is the is the goal? I don't know if I ever would have said perfection is the goal. A big moment in my life was you know I was a, a flag football hero, Ron. Fifth grade, you know, no, five years old, six years old, seven years old. I'm like, I'm the flag football star quarterback of our community. And I remember one moment that marked me, marked my heart so um, profoundly. And I had scored the game winning touchdown. And I remember, and this is like a, the citywide community championships. Like, it's a big deal, you know? <laughs> and I had scored that game-winning touchdown, and I ran off of the field, and I saw my mom there waiting for me, and she had this big smile on her face, and she grabbed my sweaty red cheeks, and she looked me in the eyes, and she said, Caleb, you scored the game-winning touchdown. I love you so much. Oh. And it was nothing nothing like that my mom did wrong. Like, she was just no. expressing her love and adoration for me, but there was something that clicked in me, and I, can, I physically can still feel this in my body. Um, and it just indicates the work that's still being done in my own life of like, oh, I'm, I'm finding the love and the acceptance and the belonging if I can just score touchdowns in my life. And so my life became, you know, all about literally scoring touchdowns, but also metaphorically. And so if that, if that is like kind of the perfectionism, then sure. Um, but I was definitely a, a performance-driven person my entire life, and there was no performance that was ever good enough. Um, and I demanded more of myself and more of myself and more of myself until I just, like I said earlier, you know, almost took my life. Caleb, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that sounds a lot like perfectionism. Yeah, it it's is. Never enough. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Know, <laughs> really, uh, but but here's you know, and and gosh, I'm so glad you said that because 
I, you know, parents don't realize when they say that now your child says performance equals love. The way I'm going to get love from mommy and daddy is to perform well. Mm -hmm. And I know it comes from a good place. I'm not a parent. So I always say, you know, who am I to say, but, um, there's all kinds of research to say that's, that's not a good thing. And so that's funny though, that, or maybe not so funny, but that you can go all the way back in time and remember that moment as kind of etching that in your brain. Oh yeah. And I think that that's, that's the work is realizing that until we are willing to go back, right. Until we are willing to look inward for so many of us, myself included, Ron, there is a little boy or a little girl, a little child inside of every single one of us that is dictating our life. And a great question that somebody asked me one time in therapy years ago is, what is the one thing that you needed the most in your childhood and that you never received? Wow. That's your work. Your work is to go back and to learn how to grow and to reparent that inner child. Whether you had a great childhood, there are still things that you didn't receive that you needed. Whether you had a hard childhood, right? The work is to go and to reparent the inner child so that that inner child that is the governing force, it's in the driver's seat, right? It's in the driver's seat. You know, it's like those moments when you realize that the situation at hand and your emotional reaction to the situation don't necessarily match up. And then you're like, maybe 24 hours later or maybe 15 minutes later, you're like, why the hell did I just react that way? Like, what did I just do? What did I just say? Like, are you kidding me? Right? Why that happened is because there's this really, really young person inside of you, right? That remembers all of the collective memories and the moments that you had as a child. And that little child is making those decisions and you're reacting in your adult body. And so our work our work is to go back and to really rewrite the stories, the narratives um, of those profound childhood moments that had um, a profound effect on our life. Yeah, so well said. You know, the the funny thing is, it's kind of cliche. Even Brene Brown talked about it, and I think in her first TED Talk is, you know, therapists always start with, let's talk about your childhood, right? Yeah. And, there, and there's a reason, right? <laughs> Absolutely. There's I think the, one of the great books that I have back here is, um, it was Oprah's, uh, it's what happened to you. Yeah. You know, like what happened? Like, that's like, you know, that's a question that we need to ask. Cause I think in a lot of ways, that question is the, it's the driving force behind so much of the empathy that we're missing in life. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. When I, and, you, you know, know, I think so, I, I can't remember. I started to cut you off. There's a quote that says, you know, an enemy, it's just a person whose story we have not yet heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we can see that in the lives of our interpersonal relationships and that we hate or that we are so angry or we're so mad at certain people in our lives for the, what they did. But when I really, and this doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries in your life. And this doesn't mean that you don't like, you know, make some hard decisions in regards of where this, where this relationship goes. But when I realized that they did what they did because of the pain that they're carrying, man, like it just, it just like, oh, I forgive you. That's like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. We still, there are still consequences for your actions per se, but I'm not going to harbor any more bitterness or unforgiveness towards you. Right? I'm going to let that go. And subsequently, Ron, I think so many of us, like I said earlier, we're at war with our own lives and we've become our own worst enemy. Why? Because we haven't taken the time to process our own story. 
So well said. I, I mean, just I see a lot of people walking around with a lot of agitation and, you know, it's that misalignment with who you are and trying to maybe put on that false front like you've been talking about. That is going to just eat you up inside. And I know this because maybe not at your level, Caleb, but I used to live this this journey as well where I was trying to be something, you know, kind of going back to my childhood. I always felt like I was never enough. Why? Because it was never enough for dad. And, yeah. and love my dad, but but he used to say I'm a perfectionist, and you know everything I did, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. So everything I did, he would say things like, "That's pretty good, son, but it's not going to be good enough to get you to the big leagues." Yeah. So that's how I grew up. So it was pretty easy for me to connect the dots back to my childhood and go, "Okay, that's why I'm this way as an adult. Nothing's good enough. I always was seeking perfection. I was a control freak, and again, all driven by." Things that were planted, I don't know, maybe in my brain when I was young. So Absolutely. do the work, people. Do the work. And, <laughs> and it's not easy. Um, and let me say one more thing about empathy. The world needs more empathy. Uh-huh. So I, I, let me let me echo what you're saying, Caleb, that more empathy. You know, everybody's all self-righteous and go, I would never do that. And how could you do this? And let's just understand people are human beings and they do have their own struggles and their own suffering. Yeah. And we really can't have empathy for our brothers and our sisters until we learn how to have a little bit more compassion towards ourselves. When we realize, when we realize that, you know what, like when I see my brokenness and I don't mean that in a self derogatory way, when I, but when I see the things that have happened to me and the pain that I've been carrying and when I've learned how to respond to it with compassion and to learn how to walk into deeper measures of self-acceptance, Right, that totally revolutionizes my heart space. That totally revolutionizes my relationship with self. And when that relationship with self revolutionizes now, you know, it's just like, God damn, like I, I see you out there. Like I see you're hurting. I see your brokenness. I see your pain. I'm so sorry that happened. And I'm so mad at you for what you did. But it's, as much as it's your fault, it's not your fault. Right? And there's yeah. a there. I'm laughing because I feel like we're we're brothers from another mother. <laughs> I always I always tell people I go I know this sounds cheesy, but I say we're all brothers and sisters. Yeah. You know we are, and I'm not. You know you and I are not the first ones to say that. Sure. But when we can start to look at the people around us, even the ones we disagree with, as our you know, I have three sisters. I've disagreed with my three sisters a lot, right? And it's just we look at them and go, hey. I get it. Um, may not agree with you, but but I can connect with you as a human being. And uh, what a wonderful message. Um, gosh, the, I feel like, I can, you know, how we say this? I know I sound, for the, my regular listeners, I, the, you're, Ron, you always say this, but I could do this, <laughs> I could, I could do this conversation for hours. I really yeah. could. Sometimes I'm going to be like, you know, Rich Roll, and I'm going to do two-hour podcasts. There you go. Go for it. <laughs> but I also, I always like to say, uh, I like to be respectful of your time. I know you're you're a busy guy. Um, before I get to our last questions, I want to. I'm a little bit curious about your thoughts on something. I noticed earlier you said run your own race, and and again, nice cliche, right? And and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know, I grew up as I said, I grew up in a competitive world. Um, sports is, is very competitive, as you know. And I always felt like that my relationship with com- competition was way more unhealthy than it was healthy. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on competition? And when I say competition, I mean the the zero-sum game, the win-lose. Like if I win, Caleb, you have to lose. What are your thoughts on, on that form of competition? Good, it's, bad? 
Yeah, I think it's toxic. Um, I'm not saying that I think we should like take away first place ribbons or first place, you know, medals or trophies. Um, but when you have self-awareness, when you're willing to, to go deeper than the kind of external thing in front of us, um, it all belongs. Nobody loses, right? Nobody loses. Like, even if you failed, even if you didn't get the promotion, even if you didn't get the job, even if you didn't finish the race, like, wow, the universe is so good. God is so good. It, love is so big that it's always inviting us into and giving us an invitation uh, to see our current experience as an opportunity to expand, as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to learn. And if you see it in that way, and I think that really is Carolyn Dweck's uh, prime definition of a growth mindset, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That fixed mindset really is a zero-sum game. The growth mindset always sees like, Maybe this didn't turn out the way that I expected or the way that I hope, but what is it showing me? Like, what is it inviting me to see? Like, how can I go deeper into this experience? Is it inviting me to grow more resiliency? Is it inviting me to shift my paradigm? Maybe, maybe my beliefs around success are not healthy, right? Maybe my beliefs around this topic or this subject, you know, need to be changed. Whatever it is, there's endless opportunities for growth. And I think our current situation is providing us that comp- uh, opportunity if we're willing to see, if we're willing to see. How do you define success, Caleb, for you personally? For me personally is, um, am I feeling 100% aligned in my life? A- am, I, am I waking up with a inner peace and a happiness? Am I living with this deep measure of self-acceptance? Do I love who I am, where I am? That's it right there. Do I love who I am, where I am? If I love who I am, where I am, I'm, I'm pretty damn successful. <laughs> Good. Love it. What perfectly said. And, and, you know, we should all define our own success metrics. And, it, you know, it's not always about money. A lot of people like to say, once I make X amount of money, then I'm successful. <laughs> Ron, you know what I've seen, though, is like, as I begin to do the work of loving who I am, where I am, these opportunities come my way. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Right? They really do. They, they come my way. There are opportunities that, and, and things that are coming into my life that I'm like, man, I would have worked years trying to get that. You know, and oh. now it's knocking on my door. Why? Because I actually believe I'm worth it. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I, I believe that positivity attracts yeah. positivity, right? And, and so when you carry yourself the right way and, and you show up the right way, I, I can absolutely agree with you. Things have dropped in my, in my lap that I'm like, wow, that would have never happened in my prior life. And so... Um, I love well, that. I, I can, yeah, I can resonate with that. All right. Um, I like your answer about competition too. Again, I think that competing with yourself is, is where we should be hanging out. We should be, you know, mastery mindset. We should be learning and it really doesn't matter if you're top of the podium. That's great. That's icing on the cake, but, um, you know, that is not, shouldn't be what we're doing. And, And then, you know, Another topic that, that I don't think we have enough time to get into, but just comparison. Stop comparing yeah. yourself to others. <laughs> you know, just do your thing, right? I Absolutely. Mean, I, yeah. if, you, if your comparison is is making you feel better about yourself and maybe encouraging you, it can be healthy. You know, but if your comparison is making you feel like shit and making you feel terrible about yourself, like it's not healthy. It's not working. Stop yeah, and the only, I would just push back and say if even when I'm I'm above somebody, right? I'm I'm comparing myself to somebody and I'm doing better yeah. than they are. 
then all of a sudden I become the pursued, right? And, and so I think yeah. there could be toxicity both ways. Both sides, you're, yeah. with your, you're on the top of the totem pole or, or, or down below. Both of them can be spun. But I think I agree with you, and maybe this is what you're saying, is what is your relationship with that sure. comparison? Absolutely. If it feels healthy to you, then I say go for it, right? Uh, but I think most people, comparison and competition um, are, are more toxic than, than helpful for most people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. All right, let's. Uh, what's going on in your world? Let's let's start to wrap this up, Caleb. What uh, I know, it took me almost two months to get you booked. So I know you're a busy guy, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna make the assumption you're doing some great things because this is a good business. Um, I mean, good busyness. Yes. Um, and so, what's going on? Tell us about what's what's going on in your world, and how can people work with you? Yeah. So I do. Um, I, I'm a full time uh, public speak- speaker, keynote speaker. Um, and kind of, uh, I'm either on a, a keynote stage somewhere or I'm working inside of, um, you know, small teams, leadership teams. And the work that I do really is um, targeting the, the feeling of being so outstretched as leaders. Right? We're, we're barely holding on. Uh, we've got a million and one things to do. Um, we're demanding more of ourselves and uh, the people above us are demanding more of us. Um, and we just are barely holding on. And so my work is really helping leaders build that internal capacity um, that's needed to expand their leadership capabilities and deepen their impact simultaneously while fostering healthy ecosystems where your employees and where your teams can really show up as their best selves. And so it's really a lot of emotional intelligence work with leaders. Um, and so I, I get the opportunity to travel the country now for the last four years as a, a full time keynote speaker um, and tell my story and really kind of develop a framework. My leadership expansion process is the framework that I bring leaders and people down that will inevitably help them um, expand their internal capacity so that they have the space to grow in their lives. And what a great, what a great person to bring that, that knowledge to people, right? You've been through this, you've walked that walk and I can only imagine what you bring to not only the, the stage, but also those that you work with. Thank you. That's, I appreciate that's that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Keep doing good work. Uh, we need more of that out there. So let's get to our last signature question. Great. And just to give, you know, maybe you're a new listener, why do I ask the question of what is your greatest failure? It's not because I want to feel good about listening to Caleb tell me about his failures. It's the idea that let's normalize this. Everybody fails. We all fall down. We all skin our knee. Even people that, again, put it in air quotes, you know, that are successful have failed. And and so I want to normalize it. And hopefully we can learn from from your mistakes. So, Caleb, what would be your greatest failure and what do you learn from it? I, I think I, there's part of me that just wants to say, you know, like, you know, failing in the NFL. That revolutionized my life. That opened up as we have talked about, like an entire deeper, further journey um, that has allowed me to show up in the world in an all new way and to really truly experience everything that I've longed for, but just in a way that I've never thought. Um, And so I would say that naturally, but I think um, one of my favorite failures or greatest failures was early on when I was dating uh, my now partner, my now wife, Kara, I uh, 
I just started dating her and I had drank a little too much. And this was a recurring process in uh, my relationships. Um, and I would get, um, if you're familiar with attachment styles, there's, uh, you know, different attachment styles. I was very anxiously attached. Um, and the goal inside of a healthy relationship is you both parties move to a secure attachment. And I had acted out in a way that was very childish, um, very immature. And again, I was drinking too much and I was just starting this fight for no reason. And I remember my wife uh, the next morning looking at me and this is just early on in dating. And she's like, you better grow up. If you want this or you better grow up. Like you need to go check that six-year-old boy. Like we talked about, you need to go check that six-year-old boy and you need to give him the love that he needs to be a man in this relationship. And what she meant by that is like being a man that can show up wholehearted to be a man that has the emotional maturity to love and to be loved. Um, and that was a, a, a moment might've looked like a small failure that night, but that was such a wake up call for me to go deeper into my own story and to go deeper into my own heart space and to begin to reparent that little boy inside of me that was so scared of being seen and so scared of being loved. And so when he got to this point in a relationship, he would push this person away. He'd create a fight. He'd create a story and he'd push this person away as a form of self-protection, as a form of allowing himself to be seen, allowing himself to be loved. And I did some hard work there. I did some really hard work and um, marrying my wife and doing life with my wife was single-handedly the greatest experience and the deepest joy um, I could have ever imagined. And so I would say that's probably one of my greatest failures because it's led to an experience of love and an experience of life that I never thought was possible. If you want to learn more, calebcampbell.me or find me at Instagram or on Twitter at Caleb underscore Campbell. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.